Blog Talk Radio. And last but not least, 
he and Joanna live their lives in Vermont with two beautiful cats, Moxie and Luna, and an enlightened Shih Tzu named Dharma, nothing short, uh, whom both swear is the reincarnation of the Buddha. (laughs) So that just goes to highlight that no matter how seriously and soberly you may look at life and seek to pull back the curtains of it, at the end of the day, if you're not going to be funny and playful, well, you've missed the cosmic joke. So, Don Farrell, thanks so much for joining me today on A Better World. It's just a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Mitchell. I'm uh, delighted to be with you tonight. I'm so glad. We have been planning this interview for a long time, and, uh, well, with both of our schedules being what they are, it hasn't been easy, but uh, persistence has paid off, and here we are doing it. uh, Actually, it'll be the same interview, but it will be aired twice this week for our audience. So I'm very glad to be engaging you in this. And we really haven't covered much uh, on A Better World, Don, in the domain of Jungian psychology. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's a little bit of a, a void. We've done some, and uh, it's really a pleasure and honor for me to invite you to share with our audience some of the basics I would like to start with on the particular approach of Carl Jung to psyche and soma, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. and distinguish it from the psychoanalytic uh, perspective that he began with that is known primarily in the Western world as Freudian psychoanalysis, which has, of course, made many turns and twists in the road uh, and has developed and morphed many ways over the last, you know, approximately 100 years. But I would like to hear first about what it was that attracted you to Jung's thinking and what our audience ought to know about Jungian psychology itself, sort of its basics and principles. Yes. Well, I'll try to give a brief account of that, um, if I can. When I graduated from Union Theological Seminary in New York City in 1964, I was... um, exploring the question of whether I was going to go into the pastoral ministry or pursue some other form of ministry. And I decided uh, whatever my decision would be, I needed more training in psychology and religion. So I went to Andover Newton Theological School near Boston and uh, engaged in a Master of Divinity degree in psychology and counseling And one of the things that happened while I was there was that I sat in a year seminar with a professor who had um, analyzed with Jung and who brought back with him the um, manuscript of an extended seminar that Jung taught from 1935 to 39 on uh, Nietzsche and Nietzsche's book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And in that seminar, I not only encountered Nietzsche um, in a more depth way than I had done as an undergraduate or even in my theological work, Mm -hmm. and I became quite fascinated with Friedrich Nietzsche and 
uh, I was exposed to the thought of Carl Jung um, for the first time, basically. Mm-hmm. And that um, had a much deeper impact on me than I was conscious of at the time. And I went on from uh, Andover Newton to the Graduate Theological Union in California, Berkeley, where I entered the uh, uh, program in um, philosophy of religion and did a Ph.D. in um, philosophical theology and philosophy of religion. But I couldn't quite... And this was um, after Union Theological in New York and Andover Newton. That's correct. Um, and while while I was in Berkeley, I was in Berkeley from sixty uh, five to sixty nine. I guess those those were the years that one should be there. Uh, I I was pursuing uh, philosophy in the philosophy department at the University of California Berkeley, and my continuing theological studies at the Graduate Theological Union, and went uh, from there to teach for a few years, but this sense that something was driving me that needed to be more fulfilled than I had been able to do brought me back to Carl Jung, because mm. Jung is is the one who um, gave us the concept of individuation as an inner task that we have to find a way to uh, honor in our lives, and I had the sense that there was a part of me that really wanted to come into greater expression uh, that you, that I that I'd gotten in touch with um, during that year at Andover Newton, but hadn't really brought to expression in a way that I needed to. So after 12 years of teaching undergraduates, um, you know, philosophy and religion, I. Uh, left my tenured position at Doan College and came to New York. Um, I also uh, formed a relationship with Joanna, to whom I'm now married, and found my way to the C.G. Jung Institute of New York to undergo training. And I began my training. I remember the years well, Don Farrell, Uh like they were yesterday. Like they were yesterday. That's right. (laughs) We're going down memory I, lane now, Mitchell. <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> I so know it, it was, like was time slowed down. It's yes, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But the so, point is that uh, I'm I'm gathering from you that while the impulse toward theological inquiry was truly deep inside you, and yes, so was the interrelationship between theology, religion, and psychology, i.e. personal psychology, philosophy sort of buttressing both, if you will. Yeah. And um, But there was something still not there, and being a pastoral counselor was not really striking the chord with you, but something a little bit more robust where you could really enter the depth of psyche um, yes. being as religious or spiritual as you would like to be, but in that yes. other more Jungian-style context. That's right. And what I came to understand as I, um, as I knew unconsciously when I was reading Jung those many years before I came to the Institute to train yes. Yes. was that Jung 
represented a um, comprehensive vision of what it means to be human that I found missing in most other uh, forms of thought about ourselves as human beings. Mm. Now, oh, that's I have a, I still have a transference to Jung, and so I idealize him in certain ways. And one of the ways that I do is, and even though critically, is to appreciate the depth of his mind and the way in which he crossed boundaries, cognitive boundaries, in order to explore the the search for truth. <clears throat> he was not able to stay in a narrow field of inquiry. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why he ultimately left Freud, because Mm -hmm. he came to feel that while Freud was on the right path and making some brilliant discoveries about the nature of the human psyche, that he had fallen into a kind of orthodoxy around his own views that were increasingly intolerant of criticism. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, At least this is how Jung came to perceive Freud. Mm -hmm. And so he felt that there were aspects of psychological existence that Freud would, would, would would not give full credibility to, as uh, important factors to take into account in creating a a psychology. And that included the soul. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. it's not that that Freud was soulless. Um, uh, He had his own understanding of the soul. But Jung felt that the soul was far more than um, the appetitive instinct in human beings and that it connects us to... Uh, the infinite, uh, and in one in one sentence in his um, so-called autobiography uh, called "Memories, Dreams, and Reflections," Jung asked the question: Are we related to the infinite or not? And he uh, came to see that uh, the discoveries that he was making, especially working with highly disturbed human beings at the Berkholsley, uh clinic in in uh, Zurich uh, that's where he started his his uh, uh, psychi- psychiatric career yeah mm-hmm. that he that within the contents of madness there were patterns that could be discerned uh patterns of meaning that connect to the deepest layers of the psyche and mm-hmm. manifesting within the lives of individual persons in disturbed ways, of course, because uh, madness is a state in which our egos are um, uh, assimilated by unconscious contents, and they destroy the personality if they if or, go or overwhelmed, overcome, or overwhelmed. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so um, that depth and breadth of approach greatly impressed me and i felt yes. as if i i was being led into a vision of life that could uh, do honor to the the heights and depths of my own experience as a human being mm. 
That's beautiful. I, I very much appreciate that. And uh, I know what you're bringing me to reflect, in fact, on my first encounters with uh, Carl Jung's work as well back in the uh, early 70s and how it just opened up a, oh, you know, based on your experience, Don, that you're sharing with us here, it reminds me of a thought that I had then when I was at the ripe old age of 19. And I said to myself when I first uh, was given as a gift by a good friend, uh, Man and His Symbols. Ah, uh, yes. Upon reading that, you know, sort of a, a bit of a coffee clutch kind of book, but truly brilliant. Each of the essays were really brilliant. Uh, I said, my God, this is a way of being in a profession that I cared about that is related to health uh, mm-hmm. and well-being, mental health, yeah. emotional health, and overall well-being, and uh, being spiritual at the same time. I remember yeah. saying that to myself aloud because I, you know, and that's so much, I think, of what Jung brought to the table. He had a, a level of academic refinement, of scholarly and uh, medical sophistication, mm-hmm. and, yeah. as you're indicating, you know, left, right, and sideways, he was a deep, spiritual being and that was uh, the depth of his commitment yes that's so, right you know I, I think that's something that probably resonated for us both uh, it in did. encountering his work I'm sure right? that's it the case yes. spoke to those but I do want to say in honor of Freud who over time I have come to respect even more than I think I used to back when I was emotionally going in the direction of Jung and how many masters are we going to worship. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there was an increase in one direction and a lessening in the other, to be just blatantly honest about it. But upon reading Bruno Bettelheim's book, Freud and Man's Soul, there was yes. a lot of clarity, right, that came to the foreground uh, about Freud's relationship to the word soul and how his daughter, Anna, uh, allowed the word to be mistranslated from German into English for the sake of preserving a certain medical prestige and reputation of her father's as the psychoanalytic community was beginning to develop here in the United States. Yes. That is, that's Bruno Bettelheim's story, and um, uh, we are in his debt for making that clear. And that's yeah. why I think we, we, we are moving into an age. Um, I just reviewed a book that has come out called Transformations, Jung's Legacy and Clinical Work, written by uh, my colleagues, Jungian analysts in uh, London primarily, and mm-hmm. the point that I make is that uh, there is a, I think, a highly creative um, moment that we're experiencing in most psychoanalytic communities, whatever the orientation may be, 
to a, uh, a a wider kind of dialogue and and a more openness to uh, schools of thought that we've had more antithetical relationships with historically, and that's yes. certainly true yes. between Jungians and Freudians. Yes. So I'm yes. I'm hoping that this attitude of ecumenical gratitude and openness while yet yes. continuing to be critical of all forms of thought that's the philosopher uh-huh. in me um, yes. that that's that trend will continue uh mm-hmm. and certainly the the way in which it is also leading to uh psychoanalysts now becoming more and more involved in social analysis and cultural analysis mm-hmm. and dealing with some very challenging questions around what kind of culture are we becoming in the West and in America, and how does that culture generate illness, uh, mental and physical illness, and is there a a way in which that trend toward dysfunction and destruction uh, of human meaning and and in the human psyche it, it may be accelerating. It's a yes. it's a challenging question. Yes, it really is. It really is. I'll I'll help to answer that a little bit. We've become oral, orally fixated, and mm-hmm. highly arrested. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem as we yes. see wherever we look. And I'm saying that tongue in cheek and a little lightly, but boy, do I mean it. And mm-hmm. you know uh, mm-hmm. the language that both Freud and Jung have um, offered to us through their respective brilliance really does give us a handle on it and uh, right. on on the current situation. So I I welcome the words you're, you're sharing of the psychoanalytic community, number one, uh, finding a basis for conversation between themselves, because to me it's been kind of silly that groups that are so aligned in uh, profession, even with the distinctions and divergences that are there, wouldn't have a wholehearted appreciation of each other's work because the matters in common far outweigh the distinctions, and the distinctions are so rich that it would be, you would think, right, Don, that each side, so to speak, if you want to think about it as sides, or each respective field would have utter appreciation for the distinction and interpretation of of a case or of reality. Yes, we would we would think that. Um, Wouldn't it's, we? It's it's not an easy attitude to to reach in in one's um, attempt to create constructs of. Uh, psyche and the practices that flow from them. Uh, yeah. We we can easily fall into um, interreligious conflict uh, because I think there exactly. is a religious dimension to it um, yeah. that yes. that drives as in much belief, of our as in belief system or um, is that what you mean? Well, yes, I do. Uh, I think beliefs that become uh in a way unquestionable uh can infect any 
cognitive community that's trying to think about what it what the what the meaning of humanity is and what it means to be a human being. Yeah, uh, right. We're 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 vulnerable to that kind of regression in our thinking. At the same time, uh, I I think that the kinds of personal insecurities that we suffer, uh, even those of us who've been deeply analyzed and trained, we don't get rid of those insecurities necessarily. We we manage to understand them and deal with them differently than we have in the past, perhaps, but yeah. they still haunt us. And I think that being uh, threatened by other points of view that uh, come out of very different cognitive assumptions and have very different conclusions from one's own is a uh, a painful situation that we often uh, compensate for by aggression and uh, yes. trying to sort of undo the other so that we, we're not suffering that insecurity. And exactly. it haunts the psychoanalytic community as it does any other community. Uh, Community all communities, political conviction. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Every single field. I, I very well put, and I very much appreciate that point. We uh, I would like to circle back to a point you made earlier of the human beingness that you found mm-hmm. in uh, Jungian psychology, in Jung's approach more specifically, when you were at Andover Newton. And I'll tell you, it reminds me of the importance of the primacy of the subjective, which, curiously, my teacher of neurolinguistic programming used to talk about, because as you said it, uh, you know, the fact that psychoanalysis is not a science, even though it was born Mm -hmm. originally out of medical science and psychiatry, which is arguably not a science at all and shouldn't be a medicine, but that's another conversation. But (laughs) if anything, at the end of the day, is more of an art and a highly refined form of art, and I think Mm -hmm. it should be acknowledged as such. And in that light, when you said that phrase about the sort of portrayal of being human, according to Jung, What struck me there, Don, in listening, was there was a humility in in Jung's laying out the human Mm -hmm. and in your perceiving that and in my Mm -hmm. listening to you speak of it that Mm -hmm. is contradistinct from any sense of humility that I ever feel from the perspective of Freud. And in light of aggression and all of that, this was an interesting conversation because with all due respect to all parties and personalities and character development, um, I guess also I should say character arming as, armoring as well, to yes. you know, mention Reich here. Um, yes. I would say that Jung's perspective and worldview and cosmological view was that of much greater gentleness, openness, listening, attending, attentive, contemplative. Mm -hmm. And the general sense I have with Freud's approach 
was intellectually rigorous, very curious, highly intellectually disciplined, very well-schooled and studied, and highly opinionated, and with very sharp lines, much more angular, much less the the feminine aspect, much less the anima. And I think this is one of the points of divergence between the two worldviews. And uh, knowing you and knowing me, I know why we have sided more in one direction than the other. Yes. Um, does that all make sense? It does make sense. Uh, yeah. I think I think we can say that... Um, Freud's is a largely patriarchal vision of the psyche uh, where reason as it is applied in science, as Freud understood it, Mm -hmm. uh, wants to explain with a, um, a notion of causality who we are by a kind of reductionism yeah. that ultimately uh, keeps us sort of driven by instincts and impulses that originate uh, in our biology and get uh, intensified in our early childhood. Yes, uh, depending upon what our experience of the parent, of the parental experience is. Exactly, and. That we 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 can't uh, think of ourselves as greater than that, or more than that, at least until we have spent a lot of time uh, facing the reality of our childhood experience. Yes, facing and, it down. Uh, it's got a linearity to it as well. Whereas Jung's work, we're, we're outlining some of the points that I really actually wanted to make. We're doing it mm. in some way in contrast to Freud, mm-hmm. which is really very healthy, actually, um, mm-hmm. because we appreciate both, but recognizing mm-hmm. the distinctions of perspective. Jung uh, emphasizes wholeness and circularity, if you will, and mm-hmm. the recognition of cycles in life. And... And Freud, and granted, I am generalizing, and I'm sure some Freudian analysts could utterly pull me apart limb by limb, but Mm -hmm. I'll dare it anyway. Um, There is a linearity, and as you're saying, a sort of a a more reductionistic causality that at least it appears is governing the perspective. I think that's a fair statement, Mitchell, at least as, as we have it in Freud's work. Um, mm-hmm. There there certainly were post-Freudians who were deeply indebted to Freud, but who have gone beyond him. Uh, Alfred Bion is one, uh, Matty Blanco is another, where mm-hmm. uh, they take Freud's metapsychology and then uh, take it in very different directions that are quite reminiscent of where Jung uh, wanted to take us, in fact. And Robert Lang so, is another? Yes. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Lang has been on a, a kind of pilgrimage like that from his early days um, mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a theoretician. 
So uh, Freud discovered something about ourselves that we desperately need to know and understand, and he gave his life to the the ultimate significance of that work, and uh, somehow I think it, in a way, it 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 became the closed horizon of his of his existence, mm. in, such that it was hard for him to uh, see beyond it, and. Yeah. Uh, he, someone had to do that work. Someone had to remind us that we begin our lives as helpless, dependent creatures whose inner world is radically shaped by the kind of benevolence or malevolence that we encounter in the particular life worlds that we inherit, that we are born into. Yes. And uh, that... That was, I think, that made Freud a great uh, humanist and a great scientist, Uh, and especially uh, the way he insisted that we are sexual beings and we must understand what that means in all of the areas of our lives, not just in the erotic uh, domain, but the way in which our sexuality is um, informing uh, unconsciously, perhaps, other ways that we live in the world. Exactly, um, how it shows up in our personal expressions, creativity, and yes. in all of human activity, it's for sure. Yeah. Let's let everyone yes. know that you are you are listening to uh, Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we uh, have a newsletter, a free newsletter, that is available at our website, www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, and visit it, and you can see the other programs and other interviews that I conduct throughout a given week, Monday evenings at 7 p.m. We have a community cable television show out of uh, the Big Apple here in Manhattan in New York City on Tuesday afternoons is uh, Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin, where we uh, look at different progressive documentaries and films on subjects having to do with health, psychology, the environment, progressive politics. And because of my work as a psychotherapist, I'm always sort of deconstructing any number of different uh, uh, cultural phenomena from that perspective so we can gain some greater leverage greater hand in this funny world of ours and through understanding and actually through compassion opening up to and seeking to shift and evolve uh, outcomes to a higher level for the common good and the individuals involved. So make sure you uh, tune in, get hold of that newsletter and visit our website. You can also go to MitchellRabin.com for seeing the other kind of work that I do very much in the spirit of today's dialogue with Dr. Donald Farrell, who we are spending the entire show with today, talking about Jungian psychology in general, his work as a Jungian psychoanalyst spanning the course of decades in New York City and in now in Vermont, and uh, looking at soon we'll be turning a corner to look at some of the practical applications 
of Jungian psychology as he's seen it show up in some of his clients' lives over the course of time. So, Don, I just want to say, again, it's uh, a real pleasure to have you on the show today and uh, going into some of uh, the topics that I feel are so useful for people who uh, find themselves interested in these kinds of inquiries and uh, helping to, to flesh these out. What else would you like our audience to be aware of in the Jungian perspective on looking at human psyche? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the primary theme that one finds in Jung's thought and in the way he understood um, psychoanalysis is that there is within us um, this larger personality, which he called the self with a capital S, that is in intimate relationship with our ego development and our ego consciousness. And that that larger personality is uh, continually impressing itself upon our ego life because it has more to bring us than we have uh, uh, contained in our little buckets of ego life. Mm -hmm. And it's like the sea and the island. Um, the, the, the island dweller knows that there's this vast body of water out there, and uh, he can swim in it, he can fish in it, he can do all kinds of things in it, and he knows that he's connected to something larger that his own life depends upon. Uh, he may not know that uh, consciously, but he knows it unconsciously, and so it's important to have the appropriate relationship to this greater force that uh, surrounds him. Uh, so the question that Jung spent his life exploring is, once that notion of the self began to crystallize, and by the way, um, he, he, he claims that one of the reasons that he became interested in Nietzsche is that Nietzsche was the first to give us a concept of the of the self as a kind of larger entity within our experience. And I think that's true. Nietzsche has some very interesting passages where he talks about the self as the, uh, the one in charge, even though we don't know it. Uh, once, once Jung began to develop that concept, which he drew from both Eastern and Western sources, from Eastern philosophy and religion uh, and, and certainly from Western mysticism. He then um, spent the rest of his life, in effect, trying to, in a way, draw a map of that larger personality as it manifests in human experience. And that led him into um, the study of mythology it led him into a deeper study of the world religions. It led him into uh, this remarkable work that he did on the history of a discredited science 
alchemy. Uh, called alchemy and uh, found a way to bring alchemical thought back into our thinking about ourselves and and especially ourselves uh, as uh, in need of healing uh, and ourselves as those interested in practicing uh, the healing arts. So that question uh, uh, preoccupied Jung. How does the self manifest within our individual experience in such a way that it brings new life, it brings new meaning, it brings new urgencies, new passions that require a kind of continuous transformation of ego consciousness? Uh, there's no resting point here for Jung. Uh, we are it always in like, question. Go ahead. Yeah, it it sounds like Don that self with a capital S and soul also mm-hmm. with a capital mm-hmm. S are synonymous. And well, if not, what's the distinction? Yes. Um, <clears throat> They are often used interchangeably because I think for Jung, the the soul is that in us that knows of this larger reality Mm -hmm. uh, from which we have come and to which we return. Uh, And connects us with the larger whole. It is the through line to the larger whole. That scene referred to. That's right. Jung, I don't think Jung used them interchangeably. I think he he wanted to differentiate between the the self as the uh, ground of the ego's life and the soul as that aspect of the uh, human psyche that is sort of given with our biology and our socialization. Uh, it's not. It doesn't. It's not created by those. But it is right. a part of our of our um, sort of constitution, if you will. Uh, Does it pre-exist have, those? Does it pre-exist yes. our biology? Uh, I think Jung would say that it does. Yes, um, and mm-hmm. we could we could certainly uh, wander off into speculation around um, the immortality of the soul and. Uh, the migration of the soul and and we could. Uh, those kinds of themes that you find in the great religious traditions, um, mm-hmm. and and Jung was not reluctant to do that, but he did want to sort of develop his own understanding of these questions and these issues. Yes. So he, I think, he wanted to keep some separation or some differentiation between self and soul. Uh, okay. But they are part of a I mean, he did read, larger whole. I think he may have written a foreword to the Tibetan Book of the Dead in one of its mm-hmm. versions. That's right. If I remember, I'm just <clears> trying to recall yes. that. But nonetheless, I, it means that he's certainly been hovering around those dimensions of self and soul. So yeah, no question. Now, what is now, you know your help? You're being very helpful. Yeah, please go on. I was just going to say this. This larger personality, um, and when when we speak about it, it can sound as if we're schizophrenic. We're talking about two personalities instead of one. Uh, 
Um, mm-hmm. We're not really talking about two personalities. We're talking about a greater personality within which the ego personality develops through especially the agency of what Jung came to call the archetypes of the unconscious. Yeah, good. I'm glad you The self is unconscious. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and what it brings to us is uh, images primarily, mythopoetic images of what we can become. Now, one of the reasons that he was so interested in Nietzsche, and especially in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, is that Nietzsche said, uh, we are at a point in human history where God is dead, and we must become worthy of the fact that we killed God with our um, own desire not to be um, mystified by that which uh, does not inform our sense of ourselves. And to be worthy of that, we have to become ubermenschen. We have to become uh, super human beings. Now, we all know what happened to that concept. Uh, The Nazis took it as theirs, and they internalized it as if they were the super race, and we know the outcome. It's a tragic outcome. Mm -hmm. Joanne and I Mm -hmm. took a a field uh, study tour to the death camps in uh, Germany and Poland a few years ago. Joanne has been studying that question, and so have I. We're, so we're not we're not really talking about two personalities. Uh, we're talking about a dis- a discovery that Jung made over uh, a number of years that there is this depth personality within us that brings us content if we can only find ways to appropriate it, and that's where we're we're sort of challenged because. It doesn't. It doesn't present itself to us in uh, propositional speech. It it presents itself to us in nightmares. It presents itself to us in fantasy. It presents itself to us in images, and we have to develop what Jung came to call, after Aristotle, by the way, a uh, mm-hmm. a mythopoetic consciousness, in order to be able to understand what the self is bringing to us. And then to and, develop and the a, archetype is a is a suggestion of who we can be or a phase of our own individuational development. Yes, that's right. Uh, it it gives us a picture, an image of what uh, the, the wisdom of the unconscious and the wisdom of the self would have us become. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a strong teleological emphasis in Jung that uh, I, I greatly appreciate because mm-hmm. uh, as we move into postmodernism, uh, where there is a kind of celebration of chaos and disorder and the the sort of uh, frail and fragile orders that emerge from that, uh, it's easy to. To see in the postmodern movement um, 
that we we live in a purposeless universe, um, and that we have to give ourselves our own purposes. Um, yes, and that's that's certainly true um, existentially. We have to we have to give creation to what we want to become. Uh, but Jung's argument is that that's not just a, a a creation of the ego. It comes from the way the self informs ego life and the way the self inspires, the way the self can terrify the ego and and even destroy the ego. And so it's a, uh, a kind of creative uh, relationship that Jung is seeking uh, and bequeathed to us that this is why creativity is such an important concept in Jungian work. Um, yes, uh, to help people you become feel, more. Don. Yes. No, please finish your sentence. I was just going to say to help people become more creative in drawing upon this um, source of meaning and power. Uh, that comes from the self in order to uh, move us further toward our own individuated life. Yes. Now, there are all kinds of things that follow from that. Um, one is that we we have to sort of live with the sense that every effort we make is incomplete. There is always incomplete. the more of of the self that we um, cannot incarnate in our own lives, and if we and and when we do incarnate those that energy, it 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 is always a an imperfect expression of what it is. Um, that's why Jung said we have to move out of away from the whole notion of perfectionism uh, to yeah. wholeness. Yes. And wholeness is about sort of being able to accept uh, those parts of ourselves that are incomplete and unexpressed and disowned. That's the that's what he called the shadow. Uh, yes. And shadow work is very much a part of this dialogue with the unconscious and with the self that uh, yes. he thought was absolutely imperative um, for yes. our own psychological development. And so much has been done in the past number of decades to address the issue of shadow that Jung was yes. so so articulate about. Yes. You know, we owe yes. a great and, debt to him for this. Yes, and that's the hardest work in analysis, by the way, mm-hmm. facing the shadow mm-hmm. in ourselves. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I'm wondering if, as we've seen with, and you made reference to, Freudian psychoanalytic work progressing over time that the psychoanalysis of Freud's back in, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century Vienna mm-hmm. morphed and evolved significantly over time to the Freudian-based psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis of today is really yes. rather significantly different than it was then. Do you That's see right. the same phenomenon having happened in the world of Jungian psychoanalysis as well? Well, I 
Yes, in a way I do. Um, that's a very interesting question, Mitchell. Thank you. I I think sure. that what uh, the best Jungian work that I see around me um, is really attempting to do is to um, take the insights that are found in Jung and apply them to a very different world than the world in which Jung grew up and in which he he lived and practiced. Mm. Um, so that, uh, for example, one of the interesting conversations that's going on in the in the Jungian world is uh, his interest in um, relating his analytical psychology to uh, quantum physics. Uh, yeah. You may know that he had a long relationship with Wolf, Wolfgang Pauli, who was a Nobel laureate in physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pauli uh, gave Jung a number of his dreams. Jung did not analyze Pauli, but he, he worked closely with him. And the mm-hmm. two of them developed this concept of synchronicity, which is a Oh, was that joint? Mm, oh, yes, that's yes, interesting. yes. I didn't know that, yeah. Yes, um, and wh- where it's taking us now, I think, um, is to to look at the worldview that quantum physics is giving us about the nature of the quantum world and its indeterminacy and its um, sort of movement from chaos to order uh, mm-hmm. and the sense that if you observe the quantum world, the observer impacts and changes the, the very phenomena it's observing. The observed, yeah. That's right. And he is inside that, of the paradigm, not outside observing Cartesian style. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And that I spend this a lot is of time on this, a lot of time. Aha, yes, <laughs> I know this is dear to your heart, Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, just, yeah... <laughs> Uh, and and the more one sort of begins to work with this these these new paradigms of thought yes this image of a profoundly interconnected world an interconnected cosmos starts to emerge and mm-hmm. um i think that jung was one of those um late 20th century thinkers who found largely out of his interest in the feminine ideal, the fe- the idea of the feminine, uh, and what has happened, what what the fate of the feminine principle has been in in, in the history of consciousness, that mm. this, mm-hmm. this uh, unified world of interconnectedness where um, things happen that we we cannot explain from Kantian principles of causality, Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that it, it's giving us or a Newtonian. picture of a world. Or Newtonian or physics, Newtonian. that's right. Yes, yes. This picture of this world is, uh, I think, the the psychological, philosophical basis for addressing the increasingly uh, problematic questions around what we're doing to our planet and mm-hmm. and where uh this this sort of 
patriarchal attitude that nature is mm-hmm. there for us to control and exploit without any regard to the otherness of nature and its its um, its its revenge upon us if we violate it. Um, yes, I think that that's one of the ways that Jungian uh, thought is 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 sort of addressing the contemporary questions about where where we're going as a species and and the future of the planet. Well, I think that's a really interesting point that Jung was probably the first psychoanalyst, psychoanalyst or psychologist for that matter who was looking at quantum physics mm-hmm. as a field to inform uh psychological understanding. Yeah. And uh evolution. Uh, yes. you know, and we do that I mean I do that today as a matter of course as do I I tap into the amazing domain of neuroscience. Uh yes. it's a really important place for us to uncover and relate specifically to psychological process and yes. biology for that matter, but not to go too far afield. Uh, and Jung really was a pioneer, as he was in so many ways. You've just yes. outlined and made really clear for me, in a way I hadn't really cognized before, that relationship of uh, the quantum field and quantum understanding to mm-hmm. uh, psychological inquiry. That's beautiful. I'd like to, in our last few minutes here, Don, to circle back to something I brought up at the beginning, which is... How do we see this kind of inquiry uh, that your patients over time have obviously been making because they've come to your place, they've knocked on your door, they've laid on your couch, they've sat at your, at your, uh, in your chairs and, and brought you their dreams and brought you their, their aspirations, their conflicts, and you with your wealth of knowledge and experience, brought forth a Jungian-oriented perspective to help them get a greater handle on their lives, on meaning, on clarity, and on living a uh, a rich life. So mm-hmm. I'm, it's a big question. I, I want to narrow it a little bit just to give you a real opportunity to answer it. How could you say, how would you look at the measurement of the effectiveness of a Jungian approach over the course of years in the lives of uh, some of your clients? Mm -hmm. Another interesting question, Mitchell. You're full of interesting questions tonight. (laughs) This is a very complicated question, unfortunately. I'm speaking to an interesting gentleman, so this is what happens. it's a very complicated question. As you know, yeah. we've entered the era of what is called evidence-based um, psychotherapy. And uh-huh. uh, a lot of very significant research has been done on what it is about the therapeutic relationship that can be shown to be effective uh, in the yes. treatment of uh, mental uh, issues. And yes. the the work that's been done, and, I, and I'm certainly not expert in this research, but my sense is that what 
what the research seems to be pointing to is that it is the quality of the relationship that is the healing agent, if you will. Mm. You can have a, a, a varying cognitive models uh, of, of, of the psyche and of human relationships and work out of those models if you're treating, if you're a psychotherapist. Uh, but if you're not able to create the unique relationship that a unique individual human being requires in order to be understood, in order to be um, empathically uh, attuned, sensed in the in the in the analyst's experience, if you can't, if you're not able to do that, then there there's not much hope that you can be uh, effective in in helping people, and that that relationship. Uh, it seems to me, is the art of psychotherapy, being able to build that relationship with a, an, a another human being who is not simply a projection of your own psyche, but a real living otherness who uh, is a mystery and who will bring me into uh, the depths of mystery of their own personality if we can create the relationship of trust and openness that makes that possible. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Uh, when that relationship forms and the person can go where he or she needs to go in order to uh, deep, more deeply understand themselves and gain a greater um, sense of self-integration, then I think some remarkable things follow from that in terms of what you see uh, in the lives of people who have undergone this experience. Not all, and I I am very reluctant to enter the, um, a kind of genre of psychotherapeutic literature where the therapist talks about how successful he or she has been in helping an individual patient. Yeah, because they've improved so vastly. Um, I think that's a kind of dangerous and somewhat self-serving sort of yeah, stance indeed. to take. I've had sure. many it, analytic it's failures. Very egocentric, actually. Yes, it is narcissistic. I would say even better. I, I I've More had accurate. many analytic failures, and mm-hmm. uh, in part because of uh, my not being able at that point in my own life to to really be open to the full mystery and depth of the psyche because mm-hmm. it's a scary process for any of us it, once we sort of yes. begin to understand its its uh, scope and dimensions. On the other hand, when those relationships have formed, and I would say it's the work of the Holy Spirit, I guess I would say, ultimately, mm-hmm. that we both bring our gifts to it and our intentions to it and our commitment to it, but something larger happens beyond our yeah. own efforts. And they happen when we make mistakes. They happen when uh, so there's been injury in the process. They happen when a, there's a moment of clarity and something gets disclosed or understood that has been in the background but never fully there 
and seen by the patient until that moment. And then it, it can be quite startling uh, in terms of its transformative impact. Um, the light going off. The light, that's right. The light goes on, and the unconscious gets a bit of light sh- uh, shined upon it. Exactly. Um, and some remarkable insight or some uh, new energy begins to manifest in the life or of the person. Or an epiphany of some sort. Yeah. Yes, yes. Exactly. It's, exactly. It's what Jung called the numinous. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says that the numinous is the source of all religious experience. Yes. It's the sacred. The numen meaning light in Latin. Yes, uh, and it also means presence. In the Mm -hmm. uh, workshop that I did, um, I make the point that there is a uh, one state that has the numen in its state seal. Um, I bet you don't know which state that is, Mitchell. I don't. I don't. (laughs) West Virginia? Don't no, I wish I wish I could say that. Uh, it is Colorado. What? Oh, really? Uh, no, it is Colorado. Uh, without the Newman, the seal says nothing. Uh, now, uh, without the divine nod, the divine presence, nothing flows. Nothing happens. Nothing significant or worthy occurs. That and is advanced. It is advanced. Um, there, there are you know skeptics who say that the miners in Colorado say without a mine, nothing happens. Um, <laughs> I, I said in in my workshop, uh, if you watched mountaintop removal as I have in West Virginia where I grew up, yeah. you see um, that the state seal should have been. Without mountains, nothing happens. But yeah. to make it happen, True. there uh, some of the people in West Virginia are deeply committed to leveling the mountains if they have coal in them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, so we've seen. there are these there are these these uh, tragic misunderstandings of our relationship with the natural world. Of course. That's for sure. Now, now I wonder if Colorado might want to change their motto and insignia to. Without uh, a bud of uh, pot, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they may be moving in that direction, up. even as we speak. The, the seal of the as state of Colorado exactly. <laughs> might be rewritten. Who knows? Who knows? That's right. It's in a new state. <laughs> the state yeah. is in a new state. Yes. I, I very much appreciate the the depth and the uh, the mindfulness of your responses to my many questions, Don. It's uh, been very enriching for me, and it just further uh, deepens my respect for you and the work you've done for so long, and the the humble perspective with which you've approached your work for all the years that I've had the great honor and pleasure of knowing you. And uh, I can just intuit another very important aspect of Jungian typology and worldview that your many clients have benefited richly. And please know, I say that not in some kind of way 
to inflate. That's really not it. I believe that we as therapists are facilitators, uh, not healers. Yeah. Even though yeah. we're we're engaged in a healing function, we're facilitating such healing, and our client is being healed as are we in the process. Yeah. I say Just in my uh, I say in my LinkedIn uh, site that uh, I am doing a myutic work as a psychoanalyst, and that myutic. means I'm a midwife. I'm a midwife. Oh, I help yes. people give birth to themselves. Oh yes, beautiful, beautiful. Yes. So my framing of it is in line with yours, then. Yes, indeed. Okay. Okay. And by the way, I Beautiful. I have watched um, I've watched what you have done in the world, Mitchell, and the and the and the world that you are uh, creating to facilitate dialogue and a deeper understanding of life in 21st century America and the world, and it's been very gratifying to see what you've you've done, and I'm it's a great pleasure for me to finally be able to talk with you. Thank you, so Don. thank you for the invitation and, and your persistence in in <laughs> keeping this before me. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. If not now, when, as they yes. say. Yes. So, well, thank you very much for both the comments. And uh, I just, it was getting time that uh, I had to call you down off the mountain in Vermont <laughs> and sit down and have a proper conversation. <laughs> Yeah, about yes, thank you. That are near and dear. Absolutely. Indeed. Thank you so much Indeed. for all you shared with us today and our audience. I'm sure everyone is grateful for this. And is there a way for people to get in touch with you if they are interested in learning more, attending classes, uh, workshops, what have you? Um, I can give my email address. Um, okay. I, uh, Whatever. I think it's you. possible to communicate through LinkedIn. Is it not? It is. It is. Um, my email address is lowercase one word feral d. That's f e r r e l l d at earthlink dot net. Excellent, Doctor Donald Feral. Thank you so much, and I want to thank Joanna Mincer as well for having introduced us many moons ago. And, yes. Uh, you know, clearly we've all been dear friends for a long time, and you two are very meaningful to me and uh, really have enriched me so much in my life. So, Thank you very again, much, thank Mitchell. you. May the friendship continue. God bless. Thanks again. You too. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Wow, I, I so enjoyed so enjoyed speaking with Donald Farrell. Uh I have uh had the the real privilege of being a friend for a long, long time and uh we've both been watching each other go through the various stages and phases of our evolutionary spiral, I would like to put it as, and same with Joanna, she's so dear to me. And uh the work that each of them has been doing for so long in service to the world. I originally met Joanna because she was uh, 
teacher of mine at Antioch New England Graduate School in Jungian psychology. So uh, that was the beginning of that, and um, it's carried on since then for many, many years as uh, both colleagues and as friends. So it's uh, a real rich, deep honor for me, as said. So just to remind you all, we are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on A Better World on Blog Talk Radio, and you can visit us at our website, abetterworld.tv, to get the free newsletter, as well as to make donations. We do accept, and in fact, shortly, uh, and if you would want to wait, I would fully understand we are, A Better World is becoming a nonprofit organization. Uh, 501c3 with tax-exempt status allowing us to give those who make donations to us a tax deduction for such. So uh, this is imminent, probably in the next uh, four to six weeks that process will be completed. And I'll surely announce it on this show and in the newsletter because uh, as of now, It's through my counseling practice and therapy practice and biofeedback slash stress management that I manage to produce these shows and keep a better world media going. And yes, we do have some clients who use us for promotional purposes of their books and of their concerts and their lectures and workshops and films and the like, and we always appreciate such. And at the same time, uh, when our wider audience can donate whatever they can, it's just so always appreciated and wisely used to continue the work of a better world. So with that said, I want to also remind you that every other Thursday night here in New York City, I teach a class called Heaven on Earth, also known as Mitchell Salon, and in it is a rich combination of Qigong exercise and mindfulness meditation combined with uh, therapeutic theater, applied neuroscience, total biology, the wonderful work of neurolinguistic programming in a confluence of activity that has not yet been It's really a beautiful chance for building community with others in a very supportive, comfortable, casual, yet deep environment where we speak about the role of meaning, mind over body and matter, and utilizing, tapping into our highest potential, reaching into our prefrontal cortex as well as the depth of our heart, yet another brain, frankly, uh, with an emotional tenor and quality that no other part of our brain actually has in the same way as we all deeply know. So this is the kind of stuff we do in this workshop, and we will be meeting February 12th downtown at 7 to 9 p.m., So if you're interested, contact me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net, or call 212 
420-0800, as well as for private appointments uh, or to um, inquire into our other activities here at A Better World. Thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all 